hear these words from the book that we love. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this and this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, and when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt." And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so uh, we've begun watching movies with, with my boys. Their ages are four and two. And my oldest son has started asking a common question whenever we, we watch a movie. And they, the question he always asks is, are they the bad guys? Who are the, ba- like, who are the bad guys? He always wants clarity, and he's asking about who the bad guys are. So we were watching Space Jam in honor of the NBA Finals a few nights ago, My a movie I watched the most as a kid. And, you know, the, the Monstars are, are on the screen. They're these big, giant, hideous creatures, and they're led by Mr. Swackhammer, who's like this greedy, capital, grubby, capitalist-looking figure. Like, um, it's like, are they the bad guys? Like, yes, they are. Those are the bad guys. And... Um, some bad guys, you know, it's, it's easy to tell, like, that for a kid, like, the way you build out a story, it's like one of the basic things to help understand a story is who are the bad guys. One way of understanding this story we just read, kind of the background and what's going on, is that God sends his angels, these, the, the, you know, in the appearance of men, these envoys, these messengers of his, down into the city of Sodom to see if there are any good guys there. And behold, all they find are that the city is filled with bad guys. And Sodom is really like, it's one of the bad guy themes, one of the bad guy places across the entirety of Scripture. This episode is referenced many times throughout the rest of the Bible. The city is really an example for all time of evil. So I'm going to take us through this story um, and I want to start with the, the background where we were before because it helps understand why, how, why this episode happens. Um, going back a few weeks to uh, previous sermons by, by Victor, Victor Kim and John Alexander. Um, so the, really, it's because this is really all one, one story. It starts with, because it's supposed to be taking over the course of just like a day or two. It starts with the Lord visiting Abraham. He comes in the heat of the day, so it would have been the hottest time of the day, mid-afternoon perhaps. God comes and visits Abraham and Sarah, who have been really the main characters in our narrative for a while here. And God visits them. He comes to them in human form along with two angels. So there are three guests. And Abraham, you know, he goes out of his way. He's hospitable. He welcomes them. He offers these guests cakes and curds and a calf, a slaughtered calf. And God brings news to them of a new beginning. In this passage, we see him bringing news of an ending. In the, in the passage with Abraham, he brings news of a new beginning, that Sarah, who is old and far past childbearing years, will have a son by the time that they come back and visit next year. And Sarah laughs upon hearing this, this news. And Victor preached about this a few weeks ago. Um, but nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. The guests leave, and Abraham goes with them as they walk out on the heights in the hills, overlooking the valley and seeing Sodom. And God kind of has this conversation with himself, with Abraham there. And God says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is so grave, I will go down and see. Again, it's this test. Are there any bad guys down there? And Abraham, who's kind of present while God's having a conversation with himself, Abraham proceeds to kind of aggressively contend with God for Sodom while walking with God in the hills above the valley. Uh, he calls to God's nature. Abraham, he, he says, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He asks boldly and he says, would you spare the city if there are 50 righteous people there? If there are 45, if there are 40, if there are 20, if there are 10. And God, God, God works with, with Abraham. He's moved by, by his contentions, by his prayers. And God even agrees that he would spare the whole city for the sake of 10 righteous people. And still he goes down to see 
if there are any bad guys, if there are the, if there are the righteous people in the city to spare it. And that's where we get at the be- start at the beginning of our chapter. So it was three guests, presumably God himself is in the presence of one. He's now sent the two angels, uh, the, two me- the two envoys, the two messengers down into the city. And these two are the ones who go down and who are, who are featured in the story we read. They go, come down to Sodom in the evening. You know, the, the interaction with Abraham was during the day. It was a, you know, an interaction of light and new beginnings. And now the sun is setting. And all, many of the events in this story take place in darkness. They're greeted as they come in um, by Lot, who's sitting in the gate. Um, background on Lot, we've talked about Lot a few times. He's featured especially in chapters 12 and 13. Lot is Abraham's nephew, his brother's son. Uh, Lot had traveled with Abraham through the beginning part of his journeys, down to Egypt and, and back um, in chapters 12 and 13 particularly. And at, in chapter 13, the two of their parties uh, split, Abraham's from Lot's. And Abraham gave Lot first pick of which land he could go to. And Lot took the way, he took the path that was the most appealing to the eyes, the text tells us, that he went to the place that was the well-watered valley, um, even getting near to the wicked city of Sodom, is what it says in chapter 13. He's willing to go towards the place that makes sense, is the one that, you, that we all would have picked, the well-watered place. And we find now that Lot has just been inching closer and closer to Sodom. Like he first went into the valley, was near it, then he was camping near the city. Now he's in the gates of the city, which is just an ancient way of saying that he was a prominent man in the city. He's married off his daughters to men in Sodom. He's very much established a home there. By this point with the timeline, he's been there for, pro- for over 10 years. He's really made a home there. And Lot brings these guys in, and he's a very hospitable guest. His, his story is meant to parallel Abraham's story from the previous story in a lot of ways. There's some similarities. There's a lot of differences. Uh, but one way they're similar is they're both really hospitable. You know, Lot goes out of his way. He intercepts the guests as they're coming into the city and says, no, don't sleep in the town square. Come stay in my home. Uh, he offers them a, a, a humble meal of, of unleavened bread, and which if they had had the lunch with Abraham, they'd be pretty full, so it's a humble meal, but they didn't need much more to eat. And all seems to be going well until after the sun sets, and then everything starts to fall apart and descend into chaos. All the men of men come and surround Lot's house and demand that he send his guests out. It's very much like a grab your torch and pitchforks kind of moment in this story. Everyone goes and surrounds his house. Why? Why do they go to surround the house? The text tells us so that they may know the guests. Know is, this is a euphemism. Um, this is a, a word that means more than what it says. To, to, so in Genesis 2, when God created the first man and the first woman, they were together and they were naked and unashamed and they knew one another. Same word. Genesis is like, Genesis is like one of those movies that's, that's like trying really hard to be PG-13 went really like it's like got R-rated themes going on right there. These men who surrounded the house, they wanted Lot to let his guests out so that they could rape them. That's very much implied with this language. Um, and note also chapter 19, verse 4. It says, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. What's the text trying to tell us? They're all there. They're all there. All the men of the city are there. Are there righteous? You know, remember, they went down to see if there are bad guys in the city. 
are there 10 righteous people according to what Abraham had prayed? Lot refuses. Um, and then he offers, he does something that's just the most bewildering. You're like, what moment of this story? He, he offers his daughters to the men instead of his, the guests. And if your response to that is, what? I think that would be this, the historical reaction to this part of the story. Like, even, even in, like, societies where women were held in lower regard than ours, like, throughout history, like, the idea of offering one's daughters out like this, even if they're, you know, like, guests are social, higher up on the social ladder, whatever, throughout history, this would be just, like, an abominable thing to do. It's just, it's perverse. And this incident is an illustration of how Lot as he's inched nearer and nearer to Sodom, how he's become morally compromised, I think. He's made compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise to be closer and closer to Sodom. And now he is compromised. He has no good choices left besides fleeing the city, which as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't do a good job of doing. He's like he's trying to balance all these competing things and not offend the, the people who are around him. He doesn't want to disappoint the people of the city whom he calls his brothers, by the way. Did you catch that? He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to disappoint the people who he's hosting. He wants to uphold social propriety. So he does something, he offers his, like he, there are no good choices left. He's compromised. How do the, the men of Sodom respond? They respond by refusing, and they take Lot's green card away. Did you catch that? They, you know, green card can be, you've, you're a sojourner. You, who are you coming to be among us? You've been with us for all these years. What gives you a right to judge over us? You know, their green card could be yanked away at a moment's notice. And here you can begin to see like this multifaceted, textured, big picture of how evil Sodom is. Right? So the, the traditional focus of the evil of the men of Sodom, and I think this is like we have a cultural understanding, we know this, is the traditional focus has been on how, hey, there are men who have a sexual desire for other men. That's like the evil that's, that's going on here. And I will say that is that disorder is certainly part of the picture. It is certainly part of the picture, but it's not the only thing going on, and I don't even think it's the bedrock of the things that are going on with Sodom. The Bible actually, and why do I say this? Is because this is what the Bible says. If you look forward in where uh, the Bible references Sodom later on, it, it says pretty clearly what the evil of Sodom is. So here's Ezekiel chapter 16. It says this, Behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They bring in a sojourner lot. They bring in these guests and they want to destroy them, even though they have prosperous ease. They don't help the poor and the needy. They're inhospitable. They're violent. They're racist, you know. Who is the sojourner? You, know, you aren't from around here. Who give, what gives you a right to judge over us? You get all these things mixed together, and it's this, this image of a, of a dark city that's possessed by evil and chaos. And this, just the, the seeing the city in the text, is yet another low point in the story of Genesis. And you guys, if you guys have been with us, you've seen this is just like it's one low point after another, after another, after the fall in Genesis 3. Here's some hyperlinks, you know, you click on these things and it's like it actually links to something else. It, the, the story is very much trying to get us to think about this. 
Consider these hyperlinks. There's an outcry coming to God from Sodom. Outcry. Do you know what else, when else there was an outcry to, to God? It was when the blood of Abel was spilled because Cain had murdered him and his blood cried out from the ground. This story is very similar to the flood. God's going to rescue one family out of, a, uh, out of a wicked hole of people. God comes down. He comes down to assess the city. God's, and it's, it's very similar. It's the same language that is used when God comes down to see what's going on in Babel. There are all these hyperlinks. The people, the, the men of the city, they try to overtake Lot, but the angels grab Lot and they drag him into, into the house. They seal the door and they strike down all the men outside with blindness. So the final image that we get of these men outside the door is they're blinded, they're in the night, and they're literally clawing at the door. It's like, it, it reminds me of like back when I used to watch the show The Walking Dead. It's like they've become zombies. It's an image of how they're, they're monsters. Like their outside manifestation matches the rottenness of their insides. And the story moves on. The angels urge Lot. They're like, tell anyone you know to get out. We need to get out of the city. The Lord's going to destroy it. So he goes to tell his sons-in-law, and they, they laugh. They're like, yeah, yeah, you must be joking. And consider, again, like the alignment of this story with the one about Sarah. Like Sarah's laughing because you can't believe that the Lord could do something so wonderful. These men are laughing because they couldn't believe that something, the Lord could do something so terrible. And Lot lingers. This is the shortest, the shortest sentence in this passage. Lot lingers. And if you're like me at this point in the story, you're like, you have got to be joking. This guy, he literally has zombie-like men groping at his door, and he's too, he won't leave. Like, hustle, bro. What's going on? And I would tell you again, this is an image of Lot being compromised. It's like he's stuck in quicksand, and he was the one who first jumped in. And I think we shouldn't be hard on Lot, because after all, we aren't so different. Um, I, John Mulaney is a, is a comedian who, over the past couple years, he's been really public about his uh, sobriety, like coming out of a pretty intense drug addiction. Um, he was, he was, uh, he was in the, I was watching an interview he had with another comedian, um, and he was in really deep, and he was, he had, there was an intervention where all of his friends had gathered to tell him, like, you know, try and tell him he had a serious problem. And when he arrived at his intervention, um, he, he said that he had one, he'd, like, he felt like he had just figured it out. Like, he had one pocket that was filled with drugs that sped him up, and the, his other pocket was filled with drugs that slowed him down. Like, he just had worked the equilibrium just right. But he said, like, looking back and when the intervention happened, he's like, yeah, at that time, I, it's like, I knew I liked drugs more than other people. I would have said I, I, would have, I knew I liked them. But I didn't think that I had a serious problem. You know, kind of like Lot lingering shows that he didn't think he had a serious problem. And John Mulaney, he, he goes on, he tells these stories, and he has, like, whole bits about this in his stand-up specials, where he talks about, like, the outlandish things that he would do to, like, each day to just like maintain his his addiction. Like he tells this one story in the interview I was reading where he was like, or an interview I heard where he was uh, at like a show pitch or something with like network executives and he had, he had taken a ton of drugs and he told like to just ensure that nothing would go wrong, he told them, he was like, uh, just so you guys know, if I get a sudden bloody nose or I pass out, it's because I have a sinus infection. You know, just like outlandish things that he'd be saying. His choices through the day 
were controlled by his addiction. And he says, towards the end of the interview, he says, he's like, drugs are a disaster. He's like, life is hard already. He has this, this really great image, in my opinion. He's like, he's like life is kind of like if you have a desk that's like stacked full of papers. Like, life's hard already. And he's like, you think that drugs are going to come in and make life's problems easier? He's like, but what they actually do is they kick the legs out from underneath the desk. And he's saying this after fighting hard for sobriety. It's all a picture. We get close to the things that we know are dangerous, things that could mean disaster, uh, because we think that they will make our lives easier. This is what Lot did with Sodom, getting closer and closer and closer. And I think we do this too. We wreck our relationships with our, with our spouse or with our friends or with our kids so we can scroll mindlessly on our phones. We sabotage, we sabotage our budgets and our bodies to drink that alcohol that we need to just take the edge off of our days. We choke out our friendships through living life on the hamster wheel of overwork and productivity. We inch closer and closer and closer, make life easier. But one day, if the Lord allows it, we wake up and we realize that we're stuck and our options are actually not in our control anymore and our options are actually controlled by the very thing that's killing us. We realize that our, like our relationships, our marriage, our, our relationships with our kids, they totally need to be rebuilt. We realize that our alcohol intake has reached the point that we're cranky on the hours of the day when we're not drinking, if those hours exist anymore. We realize that our friendships have just become a desert and we're alone and we don't know where to start. And here's the crazy thing about when we reach those points. In those situations, on those days, the best option always looks like continuing to go back to the very thing that's killing us, right? Go back to the phone, to the alcohol, to the overwork. It'll make life easier. It'll make this realization easier. This is Lot. This is Lot. This is why he insists on fleeing to another little city. It's like, it's got to be similar. He's become dependent on the very thing that got him trapped. He's come to love the quicksand. So let's be kind to Lot, because we, because I, am not so different. So in his mercy, uh, in God's mercy, the angels have to literally seize him and take him and his wife and his daughters outside the city. And even after his rescue, Lot is bargaining with God to try and make things easier. His bargaining is very different than Abraham's pleading with God in the previous chapter. Uh, the angels tell him to go to the hills, which is where Abraham was, and it's, but he's too afraid. He wants to flee to another little city, just a little city. And cities, at this point in Genesis, cities have not been good places. Okay, So Cain founds the first city. Uh, Babel's a city. Sodom's a city. He's, going, he's saying he wants to go to another place that's, that's bad. <laughs> he's pleading with God. It's very different, than, like I said, than the way Abraham pleads. And God ends, he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, the city filled with the evil people through raining down sulfur and fire. The expression fire and brimstone starts here. This is where it comes from. And the story ends where it began in chapter 18 with this whole 
background I just gave you. It ends uh, with Abraham on the hills overlooking the valley that has now been destroyed. He's in the same place where he had been pleading with God to spare the city. Um, so my uh, interesting fact uh, that some in the room may have been here for this, uh, my first sermon at Liberty actually, uh, just about six years ago, it was July 2017, my first sermon at Liberty was actually on this text. Uh, it was on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I've been reflecting some on preaching it then versus preaching it now, and there are ways I kind of feel a need to preach this text a bit differently. Um, when I preached it then, I, I felt the need to defend, you know, why it was right for God to be a judge and to judge systems and destroy systems of evil. Um, but as I read our cultural winds, and I could be wrong here, um, it seems that we understand why there should be a God who judged and destroys. Like, there's a part of us that wants that more than we maybe did six, ten years ago, 15 years ago. Um, like, we, we want justice. We want unjust systems dismantled. We want unjust institutions torn down, right? Justice has, in so many ways, has been the cry of our times. And I think there's been a lot of good in that, right? But we never think that we should be the ones judged, ever. Like, isn't it weird that everyone across the political spectrum thinks they're part of a persecuted minority and there's some kind of evil, unjust group of people at the top that they need to get their just desserts? Everyone. This is my summary of our politics, our media, our discourse. May God judge thee, but may he have only mercy on me. So with that in mind, relying as, as much as I can on the whole testimony of Scripture, I want to offer a warning, and I want to offer a way. A warning. Uh, Jesus alluded to this passage a lot. Uh, he, Jesus described hell as an unquenchable fire. Does that sound familiar at all? In Luke 17, he warned his disciples to not be like Lot's wife, um, to not look back on their past lives and instead surrender and give everything to him. But his most explicit citation of this passage was in Matthew 10 and 11, when he sends his disciples out to do works in his name. Um, after they come back and there are cities like um, Capernaum that have rejected his disciples, m wonders have been done, but the cities have rejected them. Jesus pronounces a woe on those cities. Jesus says this, he says, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. As if to say, those who rejected Jesus, the work of Jesus and the work of Jesus' disciples were worse. So my son, hearing the story today, he'd ask, who are the bad guys? And it's, this text is clear as day. It's all the men of the city, Sodom. But Jesus suggested there could be worse bad guys for whom the judgment will be harsher than Sodom. Who? Those who have seen the works of Jesus yet refuse to repent. Um, if we see, um, and this is, and Jesus, by the way, he's aiming that at the, the, who, those who were at that time the people of God, right? If we see the works of Christ in the world, if we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
if we see good works done by women and men in the church, if we know people who are enemies in the church who've been reconciled, has anyone seen that? If we see God provide for us in ways that we've asked him in prayer, daily bread, jobs, relationships, if we watch people's lives who we know truly transformed by Christ, if through the work of the church we see the hungry fed, the naked clothed, the poor provided for, if we see those things, if we see Christ working in the world, but our response remains the same as the chorus of the world around us, God judge thee, but may he only have mercy on me. If we say everyone must change but me, because I have my rights. Then Jesus says, I think Jesus himself says to us, um, to those who would be in those shoes, he says, judgment will be worse, your judgment will be worse than Sodom's. That's what it says. Um, so I warn you, and I think I say this with Jesus, um, I warn you to Repent. Today, turn away from the ways that you've been prideful, like the way the prophet Ezekiel describes Sodom. Turn away from where you've been stuck in the world like Lot. Or perhaps take today, take our time gathering at the Lord's Supper to earnestly ask God and open your heart for the first time in a long time to the possibility that you owe someone in your life an apology. Uh, not, not a, hey, my bad, like, when I play pickup basketball, I'm the, my bad guy. You know, I miss a shot, my bad. Turnover, my bad. Miss a defensive assignment, my bad. Not my bad, but I have wronged you and I ask for your forgiveness. Tell me what I have to do to make things right. Do you need to do that today? May our hearts break and may our lives be changed because we know, as the Apostle Paul says, that we are the greatest of all sinners. Romans 2 says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. I also want to tell you about a way, though. That's not the end of the sermon. Why is Lot rescued? Uh, it's certainly not because he was righteous, right? It's certainly not because there were enough righteous people in the city. It's certainly not because he got his act together. It's certainly not uh, because he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. This is a special instance in the Bible where the text is very clear about what the point of the passage is. Look with me again at, at verse 29, the last verse. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why is Lot rescued? Because God remembered Abraham. God remembered his promises to Abraham, that he said to Abraham, whoever you bless, I will bless, and your name will be a blessing. Uh, he remembered, because it was God ultimately remembering the promises he had made to Abraham. He remembered that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. God saved Lot because Abraham was walked with God, because Abraham was righteous. And really, ultimately, the only difference between Lot and the men of Sodom because remember, he doesn't want to leave. He lingers. The, old, the only difference between them is Lot's connection to Abraham. That's the thing. The righteousness of the first man, the righteousness of Abraham, counts for the second man, for Lot. And so the second man is rescued. 
Abraham's righteousness was Lot's only hope, his way out of Sodom, his ticket for rescue. And some of you can see where this is going. So it is with us. Jesus Christ very much occupies the position of Abraham for each of us. Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, and rose again so that his righteousness could be ours, so that our sins could be cleansed, so that the very things that your conscience burns when I'm giving you that strong, harsh warning, those very things can be washed clean and you can walk in newness of life. He is the Abraham. We are the lot in need of rescue. He is the way. Jesus is the way. Like the song we were singing, we, said, we sang, my life is hid with Christ on high. On high. Remember, Abraham ends this passage on, in the heights and the hills. My life is hid with the righteous man on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. That's our rescue. That's our way out of the ways that we're stuck. The ways that we're completely compromised. Out of whatever Sodom resembles for you. Jesus is our rescue. He's my rescue. He's your rescue. In his mercy, he drags us out of the city, not because of us, because of what we've done, but because of the righteous one. And we've done nothing to deserve it. So let me do some uh, math for you then. Some math as we leave this morning. How many righteous people, how many righteous people does God need to transform your family? How many righteous people does God need to transform your block? How many righteous people does God need to transform our neighborhoods or the city of Philadelphia? How many? One. He just needs one. And his name is Jesus. He is the way to life, folks out of our, our own struggles and our own sinfulness, but also for all those who are around us. We aren't here to change the world, but we're here to live, speak, and serve in Jesus, as Jesus' presence in his name as we wait for him, the righteous one, to rescue. And I want to end with, this is a, a prayer that I pray sometimes on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings in preparation for this meal, which is very much about how we are not righteous, and we turn look to his Christ's merits, Christ's righteousness. So it's got some these and thous. I apologize for those of you who find that, who want to roll your eyes. I get it. Um, I like it. I'm weird. Um, but I invite you to, to, to pray this prayer with me as I conclude. Oh, gracious and merciful God, the Almighty Father, look down from heaven the throne of thy great glory upon me thine unworthy creature, with the eyes of thy covenanted mercy and compassion. O Lord my God, I disclaim all merit. I renounce all righteousness of my own, either inherent in my nature or acquired by my own industry. And I fly for refuge, for pardon, and sanctification to the righteousness of thy Christ. For his sake, for the sake of the blessed Jesus, thy son, whom thou hast set forth to be a propitiation for fallen man, and in whom alone thou art well pleased, have mercy upon me. Receive my prayers, pardon my infirmities, strengthen my weak resolutions, guide my steps to thy holy table, and there feed me by thy Holy Spirit with the meat which perisheth not, but endureth to everlasting life. Amen.
the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.